0: SNAP Production.
1: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday, the end of the week. It's the 18th of June. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Jan Fran. And Jan, in today's briefing, a modern-day Noah's Ark.
0: I love this story so much. It seems like an extraordinarily futuristic idea, and it involves taking sperm to the moon. What we
2: envision is having a building structure the size of a small regional airport Then you would have these cryo-freezers store the biological specimens of the 6.7 million species. That guy's basically Noah.
0: That's a real plan. (laughs) People have proposed this plan. We're going to speak to one of them.
1: Yeah, so basically flying sperm, eggs, DNA samples, putting them in lava tubes on the moon. More on that in our briefing. First, here are the big stories of today.
0: All right, well, it's another big setback for Australia's vaccine rollout today. The federal health authorities have now recommended that no one under the age of 60 should get the AstraZeneca vaccine. This was after more cases of the rare blood clotting syndrome were reported. Be alert, but but don't be alarmed uh, about this. It is still an extremely rare event and mostly not
1: a serious one. That's the Chief Health Officer, Paul Kelly, speaking there. The government's now recommending people aged between 50 and 59 get the Pfizer jab instead.
0: Yeah, so up until yesterday, authorities had been saying that the AstraZeneca jab was safe for anyone over 50, but the change in advice comes after seven cases of blood clotting were reported in people aged 50 to 59 in the last week.
1: And that comes after the news of a second death. There was a 52-year-old woman who died, uh, likely linked to having the AstraZeneca vaccine. She died of the rare blood clotting condition, TTS. And, of course, there was the first death linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine, a 48-year-old woman in April.
0: Yeah. Now, the AstraZeneca um, vaccine is so far the only COVID vaccine that we make locally here in Australia. It was intended to be, you know, the workhorse, so to speak, of Australia's vaccine rollout. Labor's health spokesman, Richard Miles has criticised the government for basically relying too heavily on the drug.
1: The Prime Minister bet the House on AstraZeneca and
0: now the this rollout is leading in complete disarray.
1: Yeah, this is a real worry for our vaccine rollout, which Absolutely. is already going really badly. I mean,
0: we're already hearing reports of people who are booked in to get the AstraZeneca that are over 50 who are now scrambling to cancel those appointments because they're not sure what's going on. Um, just for some context, though, that there have been around 60 either likely or confirmed blood clotting cases in Australia, and this is out of 3.8 million AstraZeneca doses that have been administered, right? So the numbers are incredibly small when you look at them like that. Obviously, the consequences of having a blood clot can be quite serious, though. This now means that there's around 2.1 million people aged between 50 and 59 who will now need to be moved into the queue for Pfizer. But, of course, we don't make Pfizer here in Australia. We import Pfizer from overseas.
1: It's so disappointing, isn't it, how this is going for Australia? And because Mm. we haven't had any COVID, um, we don't have any natural immunity either. Mm. So the vaccine rollout is even more important.
0: Yeah. Can I give you some comparisons? I know sometimes it's it's not good to compare, but a country like Israel, for example, has got the majority of its population vaccinated. The US, they started its rollout um, a little bit before we did, but 40% of its population is fully vaccinated. More than half have received at least one dose, not AstraZeneca. And China, I know, a slight outlier, but they're vaccinating 20 million people a day. You know, countries are moving along and yeah, we're having a lot of issues.
1: I thought you were going to compare it to the chances of getting struck by lightning.
0: No. <laughs>
1: because it's about it's it's you got a greater chance of being struck by lightning than dying from the AstraZeneca vaccine.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good thing to bear in mind. Police are investigating whether the man at the center of Sydney's latest COVID outbreak followed proper precautions in his job as a driver for International Air crew.
2: Being slack about what the health authorities ask you to do is just inexcusable.
1: That's Brad Hazard, the New South Wales Health Minister. The man at the centre of this cluster, which is only three cases so far, um, he wasn't vaccinated and police are investigating whether he was wearing a mask while he was doing his driving job And also whether he'd been taking the daily required COVID tests.
0: Yeah, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian um, has also said that people working in the quarantine system who are employed by the New South Wales government are vaccinated. However, there is no rule for subcontractors to get the jab and this particular driver was a subcontractor. We've vaccinated all those who are permanent employees, who've been in the system a while, but every day there are new people, uh, subcontractors of subcontractors coming into the system.
1: So this cluster in Sydney's eastern suburbs has grown to three. The man passed it on to his partner and the latest case is a woman at a local cafe.
0: Yeah, so, while that's the story in New South Wales. Victorians are today waking up to less restrictions. The 25 kilometre rule is gone. You can travel to the regions. Um, Gyms are back up and running. Masks are no longer required outdoors. If you are heading to the snow, though, you will um, have to get a test within 72 hours of your trip a negative result, obviously. Um, The Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, says that infections on the mountain could Mm. be a super spreading event, and they do not want that.
1: Yeah, there were some wild scenes in Austria at the start of the pandemic where um, people were in these small bars up in the mountains, and then they all got on planes and took COVID back to something like 20, 30 countries.
0: Yeah, no, keep COVID off the mountain, thanks. Well, Australia's unemployment rate has fallen back to where it was before the beginning of the pandemic as the government raises concerns about a skills shortage.
2: We're just going to have to skill up our
0: people as as best as we can and encourage them to take up those job opportunities where they are.
1: That's the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. So the jobless rate uh, has gone down 0.4% to 5.1%, which is a really low number, same level as December 2019.
0: Yeah, recruiters and economists say that the lack of foreign workers who've traditionally filled many of the roles has contributed to the drive in job creation. and um, They also say that the trends in the latest figures are putting more power into the hands of workers.
1: Mm, yeah, so people have been concerned that wages haven't gone up in ages. So now that the labour market tightens... This is how wages go up. But we also hear the concerns about a skills shortage that we basically can't get the people we need to do the jobs. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, the um, the government has negotiated a new farm work visa scheme. This is to bring Southeast Asian migrants to Australia to fill some of the jobs that are required. And they've promised to keep spending in the economy until the unemployment rate has fallen below 5%.
1: And a big decision from tennis veteran Rafael Nadal... After a disappointing loss in the French Open semi final to Djokovic, he's pulled out of Wimbledon and the Tokyo Olympics. So, for a guy who's 35, who people have been watching very closely, him and Federer have stayed right at the top until very late in their careers. This is a very interesting decision from him.
0: Yeah, well, you know, he said he was listening to his body and that he hasn't had time to recover due to the two week turnaround between the French Open in Paris and Wimbledon in London. Taking that time out to look after himself, maybe Mm. he'll be back
1: playing a long game. When's he going to come back, though? Um, He hasn't said if he's playing um, the US Open in August, so hopefully it's not the last we'll see of Rafael Nadal.
0: Nah, he's going to be around forever.
1: All right, in just a moment, we'll go on to the moon.
0: Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Well, here's a sentence that I never thought I'd say. Scientists have come up with a plan to send eggs, sperm and seed samples from 6.7 million Earth species to a vault inside the moon.
1: You never thought you'd say that? I never
0: thought I'd say that. It sounds like something that I've just made up. But no, this is a real idea Proposed by a team of actual scientists from the University of Arizona.
1: So the plan is to house eggs, sperms, seeds and other DNA matter inside lunar lava tubes, these massive caverns under the moon's surface and the points to preserve the human race as well as animals, plants and fungi uh, in the event of a global catastrophe.
0: Yeah, so the scientists are calling it a modern global insurance policy, right? Which really just sounds like a very futuristic and far fancier version of Noah's Ark?
1: So many questions. Many and questions. Yeah.
0: And here to answer them is the scientist behind the plan, Jahan Thanger. He's an assistant professor of aerospace and mechanical engineering at the University of Arizona, lead researcher on this. He joins us now.
1: Jahan, thank you so much for joining us on the briefing. This really does feel like the modern day Noah's Ark story. Um, does that comparison hold water, pun intended? And would that make you <laughs> Noah? <laughs>
2: There are, I think, some uh, uh, reasonable similarities in comparison to Noah specifically. I'm not, I'm not so sure.
0: <laughs> Is there a flood that you're preparing for, though? Well, it's uh, some form of a cataclysm
2: or, or uh, you know, a multitude of cataclysms. That's our you know, sort of biggest concern.
1: Yeah, I saw your presentation. You talked about uh, mass extinction, pandemics. Climate change. Uh, you even talked about the Big Toba supervolcanic eruption from nearly seventy-five thousand years ago. So these are the sort of threats that we could be preparing ourselves against with this so-called arc. It also gives a sense of how long-term these risks and challenges are. Is this the sort of project that might have to last tens of thousands of years?
2: There are threats like the Toba, you know, supervolcanic eruption that perhaps happens every, you know, seventy-five thousand to a hundred thousand years but there are also other threats that happen in the, you know the 1 to 200 year time frame things like solar storms and the last time uh, you know something of worldwide significance happened particularly with the carrington event in the 1850s it nearly you know destroyed uh, any form of electrification that we had in the, in the 1850s if a carrington event was repeated today uh, then the United States would be without electricity for about 10 years.
0: Wow, because, I mean, I, mass extinction, pandemics, climate change, all things that are happening, I hadn't even factored in the solar storms. There you go. In basic terms, though, how would this plan work?
2: You know, the first effort would be to identify, catalogue, and, and collect from something like, uh, you know, 6.7 million species of plants, animals, uh, fungi, and that would, by our you know current best estimates, account for about 90 percent of the Earth's total diversity, in terms of uh, complex one-cell organisms and more. That effort would have to be done first. What we have suggested is the DNA, eggs, uh, sperms, spores, and and seeds would be collected of these you know organisms and uh, be frozen at uh, cryogenic conditions. They could uh, be preserved without degradation for decades, if not hundreds of years.
0: And you're saying that you would preserve them in what's called lava tunnels under the moon's surface? Is that right?
2: That's correct. Given where we are on Earth, what's the closest location that's been untouched and perhaps pristine for, you know, three to four billion years? If you we go to the moon, particularly uh, you know, underneath the moon's surface, and, and these are remnant lava tubes from an uh, ancient time when you know, the moon was actually active. These lava tubes are thought to be in pristine condition for at least the last three to four billion years. And, and the moon is not active anymore. And these lava tubes are, are you know, somewhat of a shelter from any kind of cataclysms that could indirectly happen to the moon. The other factor is that, is that these uh, lava tubes are not so far away. You know, we can get to the moon within about four to five days uh, with the best of our technology. And so, putting all of those factors in there, storing them in this, you know, lava tube would be relatively safe for uh, you know long extended periods in which uh, you know some kind of earthly cataclysm happens.
1: So what are you going to store them in? What will the, the vault look like? And, and how will you bury it in these lava tubes?
2: So uh, these lava tubes are, are somewhat similar to the ones here on Earth, but maybe larger in scale. You would have to go through a series of exploration missions to first get inside them for the first time, map them, and so on. But what we envision is having a building structure the size of a small regional airport, then you would have these cryo-freezers store the biological specimens of, of the 6.7 million species. The underground lava tubes on the Moon are a bit colder, so they're already um, at minus 25 degrees centigrade, constant temperature, compared to the surface of the Moon, which is um, a lot different, a lot more challenging to deal with. Inside the lava tubes, the temperatures are constant and you know somewhat cold, but we would need them to be colder to maintain these uh, biological specimens.
1: Wow, so that's a huge piece of infrastructure you want to build on the Moon. Um, Let's shoot forward. What if this doomsday scenario happens? How do you then get to the Moon and turn all these samples back into living species?
2: The first thing, of course, and the most important is just to be able to save them. It's just like having a safe cloud backup in case of having your precious data locally, in case of any kind of accidents, that kind of stuff. The secondary factor is then being able to restore, and the restoration process isn't quite short or maybe even straightforward. What we can envision there is you need to have a, you know, a support, a logistics base on the moon that could deliver the, you know, the biological specimens back in some kind of a restore phase. But I could see this analogous, for example, to a, let's just say a new island that forms out of volcanic eruption. You know, the first thing is after that cataclysm, it, it would be, you know, sort of cooled off and you know ready to support life, but not necessarily complex life at first. And so part of that process would be to restore, uh, you know, simple organisms first, allow for the simple organisms to thrive, and then you start reintroducing more complex organisms. In other words, we're going to have to rebuild the ecosystem from scratch, from bottom up. It's wild, isn't
0: it? I mean, this sounds like a super futuristic plan. My brain is not really even comprehending all of it. Can you just tell us, because this is just an idea at this point, right? Like you submitted it in a paper a few weeks ago. What's the timeline that you envision for something like this?
2: You know, the component technologies for all of this could be ready within about 30 years. A multitude of advancements are going to be coming together to make this possible, Maybe we can't you know, save all 6.7 million species within maybe the next 10 years. But what we can also do is serve as a secondary backup to you know, the world's food supply, particularly critical seeds, critical plants, just like the, the ones on Earth. But the ones on Earth, particularly the one uh, in Svalbard, in Norway is under threat of climate change what we sort of envision is scaling this up in complexity we could start with simple organisms particularly seeds and plants critical for our food supply store them first such a process could help us you know sort of rehearse get ready for you know something even more disastrous in that respect but going towards the six uh, you know the 6.7 million species going towards you know this ability to reintroduce life if there was you know major cataclysm We're depending on, uh, you know, the cost of rocket launches, significantly reducing, of course, and certainly uh, some aspects of robotics technology also advancing, particularly being able to deal with very cold or cryo conditions.
1: So what's been the reaction from people in the science and space communities in the U.S.? Because you you work at this lab at the University of Arizona, but, you know, some of your programs are co-sponsored by NASA. Um, you're part of that bigger, broader community. So, what are they thinking of this idea?
2: So far from the scientific community, we've heard very positive things. I think many do understand you know this is this is sort of a longer term goal. <laughs> yes. one of the other things that we've also sort of aligned this to and and said is this could also be part of uh, you know the building block that we need to advance towards humanity being a multi-planetary species if we're very serious about colonization and getting off of Earth, we couldn't just think of ourselves just as humans, you know, just suddenly going off and placing ourselves on the moon or Mars. We need to carry an entire ecosystem with us, a support ecosystem. And so everything that we need for that ecosystem could be coming from a place like this, this master backup that we have.
0: Well, it's a massive plan. So, Jahan Thanga, thanks so much for talking to us about it. And let us know if you want an egg and a sperm sample from either of Mm -hmm. us. I think we'd be happy to. For sure.
2: (laughs) Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was
1: Jahan Thanga from the Space Trek's Laboratory at the University of Arizona. Obviously a massive idea, Jan. Huge. Yeah, when they first opened the big seed bank, the Svalbard seed bank in Norway, you know, it was in the ice, under the snow, um, keeping these seeds at a certain temperature, planning for the future. I thought that was a huge idea.
0: Yeah. Well, this one definitely takes it up a notch, doesn't it? Just a tad. All
1: right, that is it for the weekday briefing. Thankfully, you have the weekend briefing. Uh, Jamila, who have you got on this week?
0: This weekend, I'm chatting with someone who might not be that familiar to you. Her name's Nyadol Nguyen. Nayadol is a refugee from South Sudan. She's a commercial lawyer and anti-racism advocate. And she shared with me some of the most intimate parts of her upbringing, her traumatic earliest memories, and why she will always think of herself as a refugee first. I really implore everyone, this is an interview that you must listen to.
1: All right, looking forward to that one, Jamila. Thank you. Uh, And thank you for listening. And also a big shout out to our hardworking team, producers, Brooke Loudner and Liam Kennedy, and our executive producer, Dan Mullins, our wonderful editor, uh, Matt Cuz curry and Emily Lodge, who does the briefing socials. Um, follow us on Instagram if you don't already, and also slide into the DMs. Always love to hear your ideas and turn them into briefing topics. Listener.